Well, it's really good to be back with you all. Anyhow, we make plans for what our year is going to look like and what we're going to do and how those plans so radically change. I did not expect to be on the little roller coaster ride that, that we were on for the last three weeks. It was great. Well, all except for the... The way, it all, the way it all started. If you don't know, I was in the hospital three weeks ago um, with what I thought as we were driving to the hospital could be a heart attack. I was having incredible, incredible chest pain, and it turns out I had a virus. Um, it was just I had a normal cold, flu virus, and it attacked my heart, and it kind of went after me. And um, but I'm I'm feeling great now, and kind of back to, to full strength. I mean, Sean and I were. We're walking all over the streets of Jerusalem just last week, and so things are really good. I want to share with you a little bit about some things that we experienced while we were there. I want to talk to you, though, in terms of the Scriptures and where we are in the Scriptures right now. Wednesday night, we just started First Kings. And so we're into a, a kind of a cool area, uh, tragic in many ways, area of, of teaching in the history of Israel. But there are some wonderful things about First Kings and Second Kings as well. We're going to see the building of the temple, Solomon's temple. We're going to watch that construction and God's involvement in that and, and the, the Spirit of God actually entering into the temple, which has such amazing prophetic significance for us even today. And we'll talk about those things. We get to see and understand and learn from the wisdom of Solomon, who... Uh, is an amazing character in Scripture. At the same time, a man who leaves quite a bit to be desired when it's all said and done because he will fail at the end of his life miserably. As a matter of fact, most of the kings will fail, and I'll talk about that. But I want to pause this morning. We, we covered the first two chapters on Wednesday night and kind of did an introduction. And, you, and if you uh, want to follow along with that, what, what's kind of fun now is if you can't be here on a Wednesday, it goes up on the website pretty quick. And you can, you can always follow along at home with your cup of tea and your, your pillow in the morning or whatever you want to do. But I encourage you to stay in the Word and, and to follow with, with where we are in the teachings. It's, uh, like I said, it's a very exciting time to be in the Word. So First and Second Kings, we're going to launch into. And by the way, I'm going to give you a heads up. I'm going to go ahead and commit myself here. We're going to finish Second Kings probably at the end of the summer. And in the fall, we're not going to go on to First Chronicles. We are, for the first time, going to take a break in our straight through the Bible teaching. And we're going to skip ahead about 400 years to the book of Matthew. And we're going to study Matthew. I think it's time to study a gospel. So we'll be doing that in the fall, which is, I think, appropriate because we'll study the kings and their failure, and then we'll study the king of kings in all of his glory. And that'll be an exciting time as well. So 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, four verses for this morning, and we'll consider what it means to have a man on the throne in Israel. 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon. I, by the way, <laughs> let me just pause real quickly. For those of you who are here Wednesday night, we were talking about the fact that David was old and feeble. At the end of his life, he was kind of missing some things. He's a little bit clued out. He doesn't have the strength that he used to have. And, and we mentioned as we were reading that he was 70 years old. I want to clarify that I don't think that being 70 years old means you're old and feeble. Okay? I just want to make sure everybody understood that because Wednesday night there may have been some who thought, are you saying? Because we have people who are approaching 70. My father is, is over the age of 70 and he is not old and feeble and I don't think the two uh, you know, apply together. However, David in his life was. In fact, what's interesting is that David at the age of 70, this is the age he died, uh, he was... He was wasted. He was old and feeble. 
And yet 70 is not that old. And when you look at the life of David, you kind of think, even in those days, 70 was, was somewhat young to be an age at which someone dies. I, I think maybe a good understanding of that, though, is when you look at our presidents and how much they age across four years or eight years. You look at picture comparisons of when they enter office and when they leave office and how much aging takes place. Well, David has been on the throne of Jerusalem, of of Israel, for 40 years. Fighting battles, fighting wars, dealing with his own sin life before the Lord, trying and striving to be all that God wanted to be, uh, a man after God's own heart, and a leader of a very difficult group of people, a very contentious group of people, doing everything he can to try and hold the kingdom together. The Benjaminites, the sons of Saul, and, and, and the people of Judah, trying to hold them together and trying to have a united kingdom. Solomon will step into that, what the Bible calls a kingdom that's established. David has succeeded at the end of his life in establishing, by the power of God, establishing the kingdom of Solomon so it is a kingdom of peace that will only last through Solomon's reign. And immediately, with Solomon's son taking the throne, the kingdom will divide into Israel in the north and Judah in the south. But that's in David's life. So it's no wonder that at the age of 70, David was feeble. David was old. David was wiped out. And so as the time to die drew near, verse 1, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes, His commandments, His ordinances, and His testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all you do and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out His promise which He spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth, With all their hearts and with all their souls, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Fathers, we consider these verses this morning, this charge from David Solomon, truly, Lord, from you to the kings. We pray, Lord, that you will give us insight into the truth. Father, that you will quell the lies in our lives. Lord, we know you are truth. We know every word spoke from your mouth is truth. And we know, Father, that we can lean into you and and, and stand on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And we believe, Father, in your word and what you have to say. We believe, Father, in the things that come from you, over and above anything that comes from man. Lord Jesus, in these last days, we pray for discernment and understanding and clarity of thought. We pray that the voice we most often hear and that is most audible to our ears and to our hearts is the voice of your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus. And this morning as we study and consider many passages in your word, we pray again that you will give us insight into what you want to say and what we need to know and how we should walk before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you look on a calendar, today is Passover in the Jewish world. A celebration of joy and hope. It recalls that life event, that life-changing event in the history of Israel where the Lord passed over the sons and the daughters of Israel when they were in Egypt. They took the blood. You, You recall this. They took the blood of a lamb and they wiped it along the doorposts and the lintel of the house. And if that blood was over the house, then the Lord passed over those people. When he, sent, when he came to, to kill the firstborn of all Egypt. 
And after that amazing and, and rather frightening night of Passover, the very next morning, the people of Israel left Egypt. And they went on that journey to the promised land where the Lord gave them a new land. A land actually that belonged to their father Abraham by promise. The Passover. 3,500 years ago this happened. And yet today it is still the defining celebration of the Jewish people. It has kept them through the years. It is the thing that they look forward to and, and draw strength from. And so this morning I want to begin by speaking the Hebrew phrase that has traditionally closed out the Passover Seder for centuries. L'shana haba'ah v'yerushalayim. Which simply means next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Through the centuries of the diaspora, that is the dispersion of the Jews, they would pray this prayer. They would say this line. Every time they finished Passover, wherever they were in the world, L'shana haba'ah v'yerushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. Next year not in this place. Next year not over here, but next year in Jerusalem. And even Jews within the the country of Israel, the lands there, would say next year in Jerusalem because they would all descend upon Jerusalem to share and to celebrate Passover together. Next year in Jerusalem. It's an amazing phrase because over all of the hundreds of years, of the centuries of the Jewish people being dispersed all over the world, Next year in Jerusalem was answered. Next year in Jerusalem happened just as the Lord promised it would happen. Keep your finger in 1 Kings and turn over to Isaiah 66. Now I'll warn you ahead of time this morning we're going to go after some big chunks of scripture throughout the word. We're going to springboard off of 1 Kings chapter 2, but we're going to be going all over the place. So get your fingers ready to do the walking. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 8. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who give delivery, shut the womb? By the way, Holly Albright had her baby yesterday. He brought her to the point of birth and brought about delivery, so that's a good thing. She was, I think, wondering if it would ever happen. If you're not sure who Holly was, she's the one who would sit about, well, if she sat in this front row, her stomach was on the beam there. Okay, so a lot of, lot of room there. So it was a, not, but not a huge baby, which was great, because I thought at this point she was going to give birth to a teenager, but she didn't. She gave birth to a little baby, seven pounds or so, a little over seven pounds. So uh, anyway, that's, that's just good news to share. But the Lord says, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Or shall I, who gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? Verse 10, Be joyful with Jerusalem, and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breast, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip, and fondled or, or bounced on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. 
Now, as I read this verse, I was thinking, you know, the Lord has brought about birth. But He's not yet given delivery. The birth has happened. We have seen this. 1948, May 14th, when, when Israel became a nation, we have seen this birth of Israel once again on the world scene. First time it's ever happened in history that a country would be destroyed and dispersed and 200 years, not 200 years, almost 2,000 years later would come back to life. Typically if a country is destroyed within 200 years, it never will reform. But Israel did the only country ever to do that. It's amazing. The prophetic miracle birth of the nation of Israel has happened, but Israel has not yet been carried on the hip and bounced on the knee. Israel is still in a time of travail, in a time of struggle, in a time of pain. As I share with you with the Ortiz family, the type of violence that goes on there in Israel is still going on, and it's still a difficult place to live. Cheryl and I caught a taxi and we crossed the Israel security fence into Bethlehem and then we actually went down to Hebron while we were in Israel this time. And I gotta tell you, it was it was scary. It was frightening to me. And I, and I don't get scared. They aren't pretty much hey, if I'm in Israel, I'm walking with the Lord, no big deal, this is great. But we actually went down to Hebron, which is a very, very tense place. Spiritually you could feel the tension. You could see it in, in the people. And Israel is in a difficult place right now. In fact, in fact, the Babylonian Talmud reads the following. Ten measures of beauty God gave to the world. Nine to Jerusalem and one to the remainder. But ten measures of sorrow God gave to the world. Nine to Jerusalem and one to the remainder. But the people are returning in droves just as the prophets declared. Turn over to Ezekiel. A couple of books over from Isaiah. Ezekiel chapter 36. And I again invite you to turn to all these verses that I'm going to share with you this morning as much as possible because I want you to see with your own eyes what the Lord said would happen and what we know has happened. Ezekiel 36, verse 8. The Lord speaking to the land, not to the people, to the land, He says, You, O mountains of Israel, will put forth your branches and bear your fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come. Behold, I am for you, and I will turn to you, and you will be cultivated and sown. I will multiply men on you, all the house of Israel, all of it. I have that circled in my Bible. All of the house of Israel. And the cities will be inhabited, and the waste places will be rebuilt. I will multiply on you, verse 11, man and beast, and they will increase and be fruitful. I will cause you to be inhabited as you formerly were, and will treat you better than at the first. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Yes, I will cause men, my people Israel, so now he's talking about the people, to walk on you and possess you, so that you will become their inheritance and never again bereave them of children. Now some people read that from Ezekiel, which happened right around the time of the, the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. And people read this passage and they say, well that's interesting, but doesn't that have to do with the return from Babylon? God says, I'm going to bring you back into the land. Well, they were in Babylon. Isn't that what he's talking about there? Not talking about a return in these days in which we live, but that, that return from Babylon, which happened around 516 B.C. Isn't that what Ezekiel's talking about? Let me read you this verse out of Isaiah chapter 11. You can turn there, but I'll just read it quickly. Isaiah 11, verse 11. Listen very closely. In fact, turn there. 
Turn there, because you're going to want to note some things on this. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 11. Isaiah the prophet writes, Then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with His hand the remnant of His people who will return from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. That's a lot more than Babylon, gang. He goes on to say in verse 12, He will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Not just from the east. From the four corners. The Lord through Isaiah tells us there will be a second return to Israel. Yes, there was a first return. The the people of Judah who returned captive in Babylon returned 70 years later to the land. But never to a kingdom like they had under Solomon. Never to the power and the grandeur and the glory that they had with David. They returned and were pretty much a puppet kingdom from that point forward until they were destroyed completely in AD 70. But that was the first return. And Isaiah prophesies of a second return, not just of Judah, but also of the banished ones of Israel. All of Israel would come back to the land. And not just from the east, but from the four corners of the earth. And the second return of the Jewish people is what we have seen happen in this generation. That's what we're watching. There's no other way to see it but a worldwide return from the four corners of the earth to Israel. It's one of the clearest signs, by the way, that we are living in the last days. And some people don't agree with that. Some people say, oh, we got years and years and years. There are too many things that have to happen. You know what has to happen next? <laughs> the rapture of the church can happen at any time. The next thing on the prophetic calendar is the Gog-Magog invasion. We talked about that. We did some prophecy update on that about a year ago. And you can study that. We've got that on the website too if you want to go back and listen. But we are actually right now in between Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 38. Because 36 and 37 talks about the return to the land. I will bring the people back in the land. I'm going to cause the land to flourish, the Lord says. And as a matter of fact, it is absolutely amazing to see the fruitfulness of Israel. It is one of five nations in the entire world that is self-sustaining as far as its growth and its produce. It's one of five nations in the entire world that actually exports produce and doesn't need to import any that grow so much fruit in the land of Israel. God is at work there. And everything prophesied in Ezekiel 36 and 37 has come true. We see it. And then you get on into the next chapters there and it's this Gog-Magog invasion which involves an alliance between Iran and Russia which we have also seen. It's happening now. In fact, it was just last week that Putin was, was doing some visiting to some Arab nations that are part of this biblically prophesied alliance that is going on before our very eyes. And so we are living in these days. In 1948, when Israel declared her independence, there was a sum total of 80,000 people living in the land. 80,000 people. Less than half of those were Jewish. As of 2008, 60 years later, there are 7.2 million people living in the land of Israel and 5.6 million are Jewish. I've shared before, isn't it interesting, they are approaching the number that were killed in the Holocaust. Actually residing and living 
in the land of Israel. Soon there will be more Jews located in Israel than anywhere else in the entire world. Than the sum total of Jews in the world, that number is going to go over the top where there are more Jews in one place than anywhere else. Which makes people like Ahmadinejad, makes him really happy. Because how much easier would it be for him than it was for Hitler to go after six million Jews when they're all located in one place? Much easier. Well, the dream of Lashana Haba'ah Yerushalayim next year in Jerusalem, it has been realized in this generation. By the way, this phrase, next year in Jerusalem, has real-time application for you and for me here at the bridge because next year in Jerusalem, we're going to be in Jerusalem and I want you to go. We have revised dates for our next tour to Israel, which is March 6th through 20th. March 6th through 20th of next year, that's the plan for us to go. And I invite you to come. And some of you think, okay, Rick, you're just setting us up here. This is just a big tour announcement this morning, right? No, it's not. It's hard to explain. I was talking with some people last night about this. It is hard to explain the passion for wanting people to go to Israel until you've gone. Because once you've gone, you realize it will radically alter your worldview. It radically alters your perspective of Scripture. It doesn't make you better if you've gone to Israel than someone who has doesn't make you closer to God, by the way. There's a joke out there that from Israel, it's a, it's a local call <laughs> to pray. No, no, it's a local call when you're in Jesus Christ, no matter where you are in the world. And going to Israel is not going to make you more spiritual. And it's not going to make you closer to the Father than anybody else. But it will change your perspective in a way that I, I can't describe in any other way. And, and I, So I just stand up here and say, please, if you can possibly beg, borrow, or... Okay, just beg or borrow, but, but go. Go to Israel next year in Jerusalem. Now again, I'm, I'm not about being a tour guide. We didn't start this church as a travel agency. But the support, my own support of Israel, gang, has come from one source. It has come from reading and studying the Word of God. I have found over the last four and a half years, the more time I spend in the Word, the more heart I have for Israel the more passion I have for the Jewish people. And, and not because they're good people. In fact, it's possible, and it's being investigated right now, it's possible that it was an extreme Jewish element that sent the happy Purim package to the Ami family. It may not have been Palestinian at all. It could have come from radical Jews who are not happy about the existence of Messianic Jews there in Israel at all. So it's not because of the Jewish people. It's not because of their own perfection or their own good works or their own glory or their own wonder. It's because of the Lord. It's because of the Word of God that tells us several things about Israel. We are called to stand with Israel. At least according to the Word that I'm reading and understanding. I've shared this with you before. Four times in his letters, the Apostle Paul wrote, I want you not to be uninformed. I want to make sure you get all the information the first time is 1 Corinthians 12.1 where he talks about spiritual gifts. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 he talks about the rapture. He says you've got to be informed about spiritual gifts. You must be informed about the rapture of the church. How that's going to happen. What it looks like. And then the, second, or the last two times both the apostle wants us to be informed about Israel. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, and Romans 11.25. Let me read you Romans 11.25 for a moment. He says, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, 
so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. Quote, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And he's quoting Isaiah chapter 59 verse 20. From the standpoint of the gospel, Paul writes, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And we use that verse a lot. It's a verse of God's faithfulness. It's one that I like to quote. The gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. But don't miss the fact that when we say that, it was applied first to Israel and the promises given to the Jewish people. What God has promised to do with Israel is an irrevocable promise. doesn't matter what anybody does. He's going to follow through and see to it. And I believe wholeheartedly that our salvation in Jesus Christ, the Hebrew is Yeshua HaMashiach, is rooted deep in the soil of Israel. This morning I invite you to jot down, if you're a note taker, three things regarding the importance of having a truly biblical view of Israel. I wouldn't talk about this if it wasn't so important and it wasn't obviously important in terms of the Word of God. Number one, a biblical view of Israel directly impacts our recognition of their right to the land. A biblical view of Israel directly impacts our recognition of their right to the land. There's a lot of arguments about this, even within the church, much in the way of arguing over whether or not Israel even has any right to be there at all. That their existence in the land is causing all the problems in the world, and we really should just, they should just get out of there. You know, go back where they came from, and not, why do we think that they should get that land? But a biblical view of Israel impacts our recognition that they do have a right to the land. One other note about traveling to Israel that you need to understand. It's about much more than just going on a cool tour that changes your life. I'm beginning to understand now that after 2,000 years of crusades, inquisitions, pogroms, anti-Semitism, and even the Holocaust, that our going to Israel speaks volumes to the people of Israel for Christians to actually come and be in support of them. What would you think if you were Jewish and you had spent the last 2,000 years being ripped apart by people who claim to be children of Christ, followers of Jesus? How would you feel about Christians? We have a job to do, gang, where it comes to Israel. And it's to show them what it means to love in the way Jesus loved. The church has not done a good job over the last 2,000 years. Last Monday, Cheryl and I had the pleasure of meeting with Barry Mevorak. Barry is a uh, Jewish believer in Christ. He's the International Projects Director for Bridges for Peace. Bridges for Peace has a main office there in Jerusalem. And we were able to spend several hours with him and, and seeing the whole office. And that's somewhere that, that we will go on the next tour. We're going to spend at least a half day there at Bridges for Peace because it's an amazing work that they're doing. They have warehouses, one up in the northern Galilee region and one right down there in the area of Jerusalem. Both of these warehouses holding each over 400 tons of food to be distributed to needy people and poor people in Israel. Living in Israel right now means that 25%, one out of four people in Israel, live below the poverty line. What is it in America? Anyone have any idea? I mean, it's not even close to that. One out of four people are impoverished 
in Israel. And so Bridges for Peace is a group of Christians that are extending the hand of peace and love and mercy and service to people in Israel. Not, not to try to convert them. In fact, even the word conversion to a Jewish person is an offense. Because during the Inquisitions and the Crusades, they were told, convert or die. You either convert to Christianity or we will take you out. And that was the choice they were given. So conversion today does not have a good taste in the mouth of an Israeli or in the mouth of a Jewish person. But mercy and kindness and love and compassion does. During the Lebanon War, by the way, while other Christian groups were fleeing Israel right and left, not one person of the 62 people on staff at Bridges for Peace left. Every one of them stayed. What do you think that says to the people of Israel? How do you think that speaks to the Jewish people? But you might say, okay, but Rick, can you give me a more scriptural basis for us standing with Israel? I hear the prophecies about their return and all that, but but are you telling me I have a responsibility? I believe we do. Israel is mentioned in the Bible some 2,300 times. By contrast, sin is mentioned 380 times. By contrast, love is mentioned 280 times. Is there anyone among us who would say that we are not called to be loving? That we are supposed to be people who love? That we are supposed to acknowledge and recognize sin? Of course we wouldn't ignore those things. And yet Israel mentioned 2,300 times. People want to cast off as unimportant. In fact, the only words mentioned more in the Bible than the name of Israel or the people of Israel, the only words mentioned more are the names of God. Second only to God in mention is Israel. And by the way, not once is the name of Israel ever used to reference anything other than the Jewish people. It is never applied to the church. Which may surprise some of you because in many churches we have grown up hearing that we are Israel. That Christians are the new Israel. We're not. Not according to Scripture. It never applies the name Israel to the church. But here are some verses for you. Psalm 135 verse 4 says, The Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. By the way, out of one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, which is Jewish, one-tenth of one percent is Jewish, and yet one-third of all Nobel Peace Prizes have gone to Jewish people. Is that not an indication that possibly God is doing something with the Jews? Isaiah 62 verse 1 says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep quiet, until her righteousness goes forth like brightness, and her salvation like a torch that is burning. Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 16.14, listen carefully to this, Therefore behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to their land, to their own land, which I gave to their fathers. There's a day coming when Passover will pale in significance to the rescue and the deliverance of the people of Israel being brought back to the land. Amos chapter 9 verse 14 the Lord says also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will again they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them says the Lord your God and don't miss the significance of that. We in this generation have watched the return of the Jewish people to the land. 
We've seen this influx, as I gave you the numbers a moment ago. 5.6 million Jewish people living in Israel today. A massive worldwide return. And Amos says, I will, they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. They're back, and they're not going anywhere as far as the Lord is concerned. Yeah, but what does that say about what Christians should do or how we should feel about Israel? Well, the Apostle Paul made this interesting statement. Romans 15:27. He says, If the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, that is, in the Jewish people's spiritual things, we are indebted to minister, or they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. See, that's much of the last half of the book of Romans. Paul saying, look at the debt that we owe Israel. Even Messiah, Jesus himself, was Jewish, of a Jewish family in a Jewish nation, and even the, the coming of Messiah. We owe that to the people of Israel. We have a debt to them. And Paul says, if we have shared in the spiritual things of Israel, we have a responsibility to share our material blessings with them. We have a responsibility to care and be involved with the people of Israel. Now there are still those who would question whether or not there should be any Jewish sovereignty in Israel. Whether the Jewish people have a right to the land. So let's go a little bit further. Cheryl and I went further on this trip than we've ever gone. It's kind of funny to me. The first time we went to Israel... I remember uh, staying in our, our hotel, the Olive Tree Hotel in Jerusalem. And we got there, and, and so we're in Jerusalem. And I, I'm thinking all the things that have gone on in the news, and the bombings, and the attacks, and all the, the terrorism. And so we get to the hotel, and I get out of the bus, and I you know, run into the hotel. And get up to the room, and I'm like, okay, good. And I heard that some of the other pastors were going to catch a cab and go over to, to Ben Yehuda Street and do some shopping. I'm like, idiots, no way I'm going over there. That was the first time we went to Israel. This time we drove in a cab with an Arab Israeli down to Hebron. <laughs> a little bit different. We got in this cab with Charlie. And Charlie was a really nice guy. He was very anti-Jewish. So it was interesting to ride for about four and a half, five hours with him, spewing all kinds of anti-Jewish stuff. He took us over to Bethlehem first. We asked to go there. It wasn't you know, against our will or anything. But you come up, and first he took us right up to what's called the security fence. Security fence is probably about 20 feet high or so. It's got barbed wire and spikes all along the top of it. And it's a big concrete block wall. It's huge and very imposing. And spray painted all over both sides of it are anti-Jewish sentiment for what the Jews have done by boxing the people of Bethlehem in. And truly it has caused a lot of problems for the Palestinians in Bethlehem. They have a lot of struggle because of it. However, since the security fence went up, 97% of terrorism has ceased inside of Israel. The number one supplier of terrorists was Bethlehem before. So I'm knowing this, and I'm not saying a word because you know I'm kind of at the mercy of my you know, Arab cab driver. I'm not telling him, fighting with him on this stuff. But he's talking about how bad it is. Well, then we cross the, the Israel security barrier and we go into Bethlehem and instantly Cheryl and I both felt unsafe for the first time ever in visiting Israel. Never felt that way before. And if you go on a tour, I promise you, we're not going to take anywhere unsafe. In fact, part of the reason we went to Bethlehem and then down to Hebron was to see, is are these places that we would take a tour group? And they're not. We won't do that. Nothing happened. No one pointed a gun at us. No one shouted at us or went after us or anything. But there was just a sense that this was a part of the world where there's more hatred and bitterness and anger than anywhere I've ever been before. 
And we traveled down to Hebron, and it was interesting on the way down to Hebron that we passed just acre upon acre upon acre of vineyards. Israel is a rocky, stony place. And you see these vineyards spread out going up the hills and and, and through the mountains, and you think, "It's, it's unbelievable that the Lord would bring about such fruitfulness in the land right out in the desert, and yet He does. It's incredible to see. Well, we came back to the security checkpoint, <laughs> and a uh, little 18-year-old Israeli Defense Force girl with a you know Uzi strapped on her back, and and she sees this Israeli Arab driving the taxi cab. Now he's a full citizen of of Israel. And he's driving the taxi cab, and he hands her his papers, and she starts hassling him. And she's looking in, she's looking at me, and looking at Cheryl. And it, I look real Palestinian, I know, you know, big white gangly American guy. But she looks at me, and, and she's arguing with him about whether or not she's even going to let us back in. <laughs> and I'm going, this is great, this is fun, a lot of fun. I'm glad Bill's not here because he'd be he'd be pulling out a gun right now, I think himself. So anyway, we, we she said pull over over there, so we had to pull over and stop, and and you know our, our cab driver. He's a real kind of bombastic guy. I mean, he opens the door and gets out. He's like, what's the problem with that? And I'm like, you're going to get shot, dude. You know? And he walks over there and he's motioning to me, come on, come on over here. And I'm like, you want me to get out of the cab right now? And so I walk over there and I'm standing there and they're arguing about whether and how can, how she's saying, how can we know that this guy is not, that you're not, you know, prove it to us. And I'm like pulling out my Washington driver's license and with a really white picture of me and you know, I don't even tan well. And, and, and I'm, but I'm not saying it. I'm just kind of standing there. And, and finally the guy goes, you know, does it, he said, does he look like a Palestinian to you? And, and she goes, well, how do I know? And, and, and the cab driver goes, say hello to her. I said, hi. He goes, hello. She goes, okay, you guys can go through. <laughs> so I, I don't know what it was, what it was in my accent there. <laughs> but the tension is strong in the land. And I want you to go back though, and, and listen again to our text this morning, to what we started with. As David speaks, and I shared this Wednesday night, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. These two verses are the key verses of the books of Kings, which were originally just one book, Kings, not First and Second Kings. It was divided around 250, 280 B.C. when the Septuagint was written. But verses 3 and 4 are the key verses of this book and of what happens with the Kings. Listen to them again. David says to Solomon, Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in His ways to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do, and wherever you turn, so that the Lord may carry out his promise which he spoke concerning me, saying, if the sons are careful of their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And the problem word in that verse, in verse 4, is if... If, the moment you place the word if in a sentence, you have stepped into a conditional agreement. If they will do this, I will do that. And people will read verses like that and say, see, they blew it, therefore they lost the right to sovereignty in the land. If, God says, you'll keep my word. We're going to see this. Solomon will fail miserably at the end of his rule. To the point that I wonder personally, and I'm not God, so it's not my decision, but I wonder if we will see Solomon in eternity. 
because he so turns his back on God and follows the idols of his many wives. Over Israel, 19 kings will rule and all 19 will fail to walk in the way of truth before the Lord. All 19. In Judah, the southern kingdom, 20 kings ruled. Out of 20 kings, only 7 will be mentioned as having walked in the way. Thirteen of those kings will completely blow it. Which means across 400 years of Israel's kingdom, a total of 42 kings from Saul to Zedekiah would rule. And of those kings, eight, including David, followed the Lord. Thirty-six did not. That is not a good track record. The Lord says, If your sons are careful of their way, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Well, they weren't careful. And they blew it big time. And so historically, in 930 B.C., the kingdom split into two. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrians. And in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah is captured by the Babylonians. And Israel has never since attained the glory of Solomon's kingdom. So you read that, you look at the history, and logically, from man's perspective, we say they didn't walk in his way, so God cast them out. They blew it. And so there ceased to be a man on the throne of Israel. In fact, God sent Jesus. One last chance for Israel to have their Messiah, and they blew that. So in AD 70, God destroyed Jerusalem by AD 110, The people were completely driven out of the land except for a very small remnant. And the Jewish people lost their chance. And along comes the church and replaces them. That's replacement theology. But here's what we miss. Isaiah 55 verse 8 tells us His thoughts are not our thoughts. And His ways are not our ways. You see, our ways are when a trust is violated, we no longer trust. When someone goes against something we've asked them to do in an agreement, the agreement's off. We don't have to keep our end of the bargain if they don't keep theirs. But that is not God's way. Praise God that's not His way. That He is faithful even though we are faithless. The Scriptures tell us clearly. Now I I tell you this because the second thing to note, the first one was that the biblical view of Israel directly impacts our recognition of their rights to the land. But gang, a biblical view of Israel directly impacts your relationship with God. What are you saying? I'm saying how you view Israel is going to affect how you view God. Do you see God as a deal maker? Do you see God as an eternal bookie? <laughs> kind of a Bob Barker up there. Pick what's behind this. I'll make you a deal here. Is he a quid pro quo, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of ruler? You see, if we look at God in this way, we will minimize his power, we will minimize his faithfulness, we will miss his righteousness, and we will not understand his love. The whole of history between God and Israel is to show us that even when a people blow it and are faithless, God continues to love Even when we sin and fall short of the glory of God, which we all do, God still loves us. Even when we aren't walking in the way, His heart is still towards you. And I say to anybody who walks in the door of a church and you've been gone for a long time and and you feel like your life has been a mess and how could God possibly accept me? I'll tell you how. Because He loves you. And He never stopped. 
To those who have never given their life to Jesus, never walked as a Christian, never studied the Bible or worshipped or been part of a church fellowship, I still say God loves you with an everlasting love and all He asks of you is that you would accept that. Receive His grace. Call upon Him as your Lord. Because He is faithful even when we are faithless. A biblical view of Israel directly impacts our relationship with God. Now, some might point out Luke chapter 20, and I'd like to do that right now. Turn over to Luke 20. Some have pulled out a parable that Jesus tells here as proof positive that Jesus Himself, speaking as God, says Israel has lost their chance. Israel has blown it and are cast out. Luke chapter 20 and verse 9. It's the parable of the vineyard. And it tells us in verse 9 that Jesus began to tell the people this parable. Saying, a man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyards. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. He will come... Oh no, he says, they, So they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him, verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now at this point in hearing the parable, you're putting some of this together and thinking, Oh no, what will he do to them when they kill his own son? People say, who killed his son? Well, the Jewish people did, right? So, what's he going to do? Verse 16, he will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, may it never be. Now, the picture is pretty obvious here, right? I mean, you look at it, the slaves are the prophets. God sent the prophets to the people of Israel time and time again. And they threw them out and they kicked them out and they killed them and they beat them and they ignored them. The slaves are the prophets, right? Right. The beloved son. Who can that possibly be but Jesus? God said, after sending all the prophets, I'm going to send my son Jesus to them and let's see what happens there. Knowing full well what would happen. So the beloved, beloved son is Jesus, right? Right. The son was killed. And so they, the Jews, are destroyed while the vineyard goes to others. The church. Right? Wrong. And that's where we misinterpret. That's where we misunderstand what's going on. Listen, Jesus spoke this parable on the week, at the week of Passover. He spoke this parable on the Temple Mount during that heated last week of his life. When things were really starting to get tense between Jesus and the leaders of the Jewish people. The friction grew steadily before, between Jesus and the Herodian priests. The very ones who are challenging Jesus' authority just before he tells this parable. Go back to verse 2. Verse 2 of Luke chapter 20. They spoke saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Who is speaking here? The Herodian priests. 
The Bible says the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. At this point, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the, of the Jews, over half of the Sanhedrin had been murdered by Herod and replaced with Herod's lackeys. The chief priest, when Herod came to power, he had the chief priest of the Jews killed and put his own priests in place. The Herodian priests and the Jewish people hated them. To this day, historically, Jewish people will look back and say, that whole priesthood was bogus. It was put in place by Herod, who himself wasn't even fully Jewish. He himself was put in power by the Romans because he wanted to be a king. They were the ones who controlled the Temple Mount and the Temple services during Jesus' day. They were political power mongers and Jesus was dealing with them directly. And in verse 19 of Luke chapter 20, it tells us the scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people for they understood, listen, they understood he spoke this parable against them, not against Israel. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the leaders of Israel. He's talking about the Herodian priests, the chief priests and the scribes, those who are against Jesus. They are the tenants of the land. The corrupt leadership who lorded it over the Jewish people. But there's, there's more. This parable would have rung a bell to Jews in the first century. Especially those looking for Messiah who would be pouring over the text of Isaiah. For in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 7, the prophet talks specifically of the vineyard of the Lord. Listen to how he defines the vineyard. Isaiah 5 7. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Apply that to Jesus' parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to the vine growers. The vine growers are not Israel. The vineyard is Israel. The vineyard is not cast out. The vine growers are, passed, are cast out. Isaiah writes, The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. And so in Jesus' parable, letting the Bible interpret itself, Allowing scripture to interpret scripture, the vineyard in Jesus' parable is Israel. The tenants of the vineyard were the Herodian priests. And Jesus is warning these guys, he's warning them against murdering the son, which is something they would accomplish before the week was out. He's saying ahead of time, he's telling them exactly where their hearts were and what they were about to do. And they did it anyway. And so this parable is all about the son who came back to his vineyard. Because the Father and the Son love the vineyard, which is Israel. Now tragically, the prevailing teaching of the historical church is that the people of Israel are the rejected tenants. A view that is unbiblical, it's anti-Semitic, and it's absolutely wrong. Another verse for you, Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for the light by day, and the fixed, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And he says, if this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I also will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, if you can span the heavens, once you've done that, then I might consider casting out Israel. If you can truly search out all the depths, which we have not and will not do, 
Then maybe I will consider casting out Israel for what they've done for their faithlessness. But he goes on in verse 38 of Jeremiah chapter 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, he's talking about Jerusalem. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Goreb, and it will turn to Goa, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kedron, to the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And what's interesting is if you look at the Kedron Valley today in Israel, it is all graves. Muslim graves throughout, right in front of the Temple Mount, in an attempt to make it impossible for Messiah to come in, the Jewish Messiah. An attempt to ruin the land. And there are Jewish graves all over the Mount of Olives. And the Lord declares, in the whole valley of dead bodies, as far as the brook Kedron, it will be holy to the Lord. It will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. And I read this overwhelming evidence in Scripture, and I ask the question, can there be any question of God's intentions toward Israel, or by extension of His intention toward you and me? How we view Israel is going to impact how we view God, and if we understand God's relationship with Israel as one of love and forgiveness on God's part, then we can walk with faith and trust, knowing, you know, He doesn't break His word, even though I break mine. That's how great His love and His grace truly is. Number three and final one, a biblical view of Israel directly impacts our readiness for Messiah. A biblical view of Israel directly impacts our readiness for Messiah. Here's the beauty of God's faithfulness. David said to Solomon, again, back in 1 Kings chapter 2, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And here's the beauty of it, gang. There is a man, the son of man, who is poised to retake the throne of Israel today. One who is waiting for the timing of God, Psalm 2 verse 6 The Lord says, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then Jesus responds and says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. My friends, the day is coming and it is almost here. What, tomorrow? Next week? I don't know. But we're close. We're closer now than we've ever been. The day is coming when Jerusalem will no longer lack a man sitting on the throne. It won't be Ehud Omer. As the Lord, it won't even be Benjamin Netanyahu. It will be King Jesus. Which is why a biblical view of Israel affects our readiness for Jesus. One more verse for you this morning. Isaiah 62. Listen to what the prophet says. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give Him no rest until He establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. And I believe, gang, as adopted sons and daughters, we are called to be watchmen on the walls of Jerusalem. We are called to have our eyes wide open, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the people of Israel. For you see, if I say to you this morning that I love the Lord, the truth is I have to love the things that God loves. 
If I don't love what God loves, I don't love the Lord. If I don't have the kind of passion God has for the things in this world that He is passionate about, I am not a lover of God. It made all the difference in David's life. The man after God's own heart was passionate about the things that mattered to God. Yes, he was a sinner. Yes, he blew it big time, as much as any of the kings would. But the difference between David and everybody else, with the exception of maybe Josiah, is that he was passionate about what mattered to God. He loved the things that God loved. And so having a biblical, godly view of Israel impacts our readiness for Messiah to come. We recognize Israel's right to the land. Our relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Ishtak, and Yaakov, our relationship with Him is secure. Our readiness for the coming King are all affected by a biblical view of Israel. And as the Lord says, if your sons walk before me in truth, with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Let's pray. Jesus, we we proclaim your coming. And we look forward to that day. And Lord, even as I pray, I, I need to pause and say, Father... If there is anyone among us who is not looking forward to your coming, I pray you would convict us to ask why and to check our hearts. Because Lord, as as your children, sons and daughters, I, I can think of nothing that we would want more than to see you and, and be with you. And I know right now, Father, your word is promised that you will never leave us or forsake us Jesus, you said you'd be with us always to the very end of the age. I believe your spirit is with us and you fill us and you speak to us and you lead us. But how much more so, Jesus, on that day when we are with you and will be with you forever. Lord, I pray in all of this as we study Israel and come to understand the Jewish people and have a a passion for them that it will be because we love you. It will be because... We care about what you care about. And we desire to live lives, Father, that that are just pleasing to you. Father, I pray for our fellowship this morning. That we will have a biblical worldview, not only of Israel, but of all things. That we will be people who walk in your ways. Lord, that, that we will be people who keep your statutes, your commandments, your ordinances, and your testimonies, not because we think it will save us, but because we delight in the law of the Lord. We delight in your words, Father. We want to walk before you the way you would have us walk. And we know, Father, we are free to do so because of grace. If there's anyone here as we pray who has never received the grace of Jesus, forgiveness for all sin, and an assurance of eternal life, I invite you to pray with me right now. In fact, you might want to just place your hand over your heart and pray quietly to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your grace. Father, I accept the mercy that was given through Jesus Christ on the cross. I believe that he took my place and died for my sins. And I confess that he raised on the third day and ever lives 
as the Lord and the King that you will one day install on Mount Zion again. Jesus, be the King and Lord of my life and lead me in the way everlasting. As my one and only King, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.